For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And in this readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up email newsletter, I'm going to start with a line from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, namely, oh no, not again. Because our lead item this week is a recycled doom and gloom climate tale involving the Doomsday Glacier, also known as Thwaites, in West Antarctica. Apparently, quote, it could melt faster than previously thought, end quote, just as in 2019. And in 2014, when NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory put out a photo of the late lamented Thwaites, adding, quote, these glaciers already contribute significantly to sea level rise, releasing almost as much ice into the ocean annually as the entire Greenland ice sheet, and are melting faster than most scientists had expected, end quote. So, of course, as a bonus, you get the fact that the science on climate change is absolutely settled, but constantly changing, and always for the worse. So, oh no, not again. To be fair, there is a twist here. This time, Thwaites is actually melting more slowly than it has in the past, but it's also, quote, hanging on by its fingernails, scientists say, as if nobly trying to save us from ourselves. Or just doing what glaciers do in the face of long geological processes, in this case, at least two centuries long. Britain's Daily Mail also went with that fingernail thing. Antarctica's Thwaites Glacier is holding on by its fingernails, experts say, after discovering that it has retreated twice as fast as previously thought over the past 200 years. Not recently. Centuries ago. Isn't that good news? Isn't it news? Namely that we didn't cause it, unless you think man-made warming started around the time of James Watt's inventing of the modern steam engine or something. CBS's explanation, though, is that slower is worse than faster because it could get faster again. Quote, at some point in the last 200 years, scientists found that the glacier retreated at a rate of more than 2.1 kilometers, 1.3 miles a year, twice the distance it retreated from 1996 to 2009, and three times the rate from 2011 to 2017. And while that might seem like a positive signal, it's actually a sign that things could soon accelerate, end quote. So, Cooling is warming, slowing down is accelerating, and yes, we are all going to die. And now I borrow a line from Shakespeare and say, let me count the ways, because The Guardian just gave us, quote, world on brink of five disastrous climate tipping points, study finds, end quote. It's not obvious what happens after you tip over and fall and then tip again, I mean, maybe you hurtle sideways. And the settled science is a bit murky here, quote, giant ice sheets, ocean currents, and permafrost regions may already have passed point of irreversible change, end quote. Unless they didn't. But still, we're in a metaphorical minefield here. And as usual, when told, quote, five dangerous tipping points may already have been passed due to the 1.1 degrees Celsius of global heating caused by humanity to date, end quote, we object first that no real scientist claims the entire very mild warming since the mid-19th century was man-made, and second, that if the ecosystem were so fragile that that trivial increase could tip it over into five smashes, it never would have made it this far anyway. The Holocene climatic optimum alone would have sent it into the fifth dimension of apocalypse. Or worse, because if we get just four-tenths of a degree more, quote, an additional five tipping points become possible, including changes to vast northern forests and the loss of almost all mountain glaciers, end quote. An additional five? How many tipping points is that? Believe it or not, the answer here is not ten, as those who paid attention in math class may have thought. 
Rather, quote, in total, the researchers found evidence for 16 tipping points, with the final six requiring global heating of at least 2 degrees Celsius to be triggered. The tipping points would take effect on timescales varying from a few years to centuries, end quote. So forget that fear of gravity as you drift gently downward over hundreds of years. And now, a word from our sponsor, and that's you. And we are so grateful to all the people who've contributed, including now if you buy me a coffee. It's helping us get the message out on Substack, on Rumble, and here on YouTube, where in fact we've added more than 5,000 subscribers in the last month alone. And so I put on my best flannel shirt to say to the rest of you, politely and gently, fork over the cash, pronto. We thank you for your kind consideration, and now back to the program. Forget also anything you know about engineering. The semi-venerable Canadian Institute for Research and Public Policy just published a piece in its Policy Options magazine claiming, quote, Canada has enormous potential for renewable generation. Wind, solar, and energy storage are proven, affordable technologies that can be produced here in Canada while avoiding the volatility of global fossil fuel markets, end quote. The piece concerned a study by the all-in on global warming it'll drown Santa David Suzuki Foundation and the University of Victoria, and provided the dispassionate and balanced view of that study by Tom Green, who's a senior climate policy advisor with the David Suzuki Foundation, and Stephen Thomas, a climate solutions policy analyst with the David Suzuki Foundation. Fortunately, it was published in English, not in German, because over there, they've already seen what really happens when you lunge at your supposed enormous potential for renewable generation. The lights go out, the furnace goes off, and the factory closes. Indeed, the authors of this piece admit that, quote, the transition of Canada's electricity system must solve two problems at once. It must first clean up the existing electricity system, but it must also meet future electricity needs from zero emission sources, while overall electricity capacity doubles or even triples by 2050, end quote. But such obstacles are trivial inside a computer, especially if what you're doing in there is wielding a word processor. It's easy to write that these new and unreliable things are proven affordable technologies. But we do want to know where they think they're proven. In California with its rolling blackouts? And where are they affordable? In Ontario with its windmills generating overpriced power at the wrong time? Oh yeah, cheaper than cheap. Quote, as wind and solar have become the cheapest forms of electricity generation in history, we're already seeing foreign governments and utilities ramp up renewable projects at the pace and scale that would be needed here in Canada, end quote. So, why aren't we doing it? Well, to figure that out, the IRPP authors found some like-minded programmers at the University of Victoria, quote, to model the electricity grid of the future, end quote. Piece of cake, called George Jetson. Again, they do concede that, quote, there's no doubt it will take unprecedented effort and scale to transform Canada's electricity systems. The high electrification pathway would require an 18-fold increase over today's renewable electricity capacity, deploying an unprecedented amount of new wind, solar, and energy storage projects every year from now to 2050. Although the scale seems daunting, countries such as Germany are demonstrating that this pace and scale is possible, end quote. And of course, they also say, quote, the modeling also showed that small modular nuclear reactors, SMRs, are neither necessary nor cost-effective, end quote. So, quote, we believe that Canada should terminate the significant subsidies and supports it's giving to fossil fuel companies 
and redirect the support to renewable electricity, energy efficiency, and energy affordability programming, end quote. And guess what? You get jobs for the kids into the bargain, quote, the transition to clean electricity would come with new employment for people living in Canada. Building tomorrow's grid will support more than 75,000 full-time jobs each year in construction, operation, and maintenance of wind, solar, and transmission facilities alone, end quote. Are we done yet? No, of course not. We also have to fix history. Quote, regardless of the path chosen, all energy projects in Canada take place on unceded Indigenous territories or treaty land. Decolonizing power structures with benefits to Indigenous communities is imperative, end quote. Man, this game is easy. Inside a computer. In the newsletter, we also note the suggestion of a perceptive reader that instead of colouring 26 degrees Celsius charred red on weather maps that used to show that same temperature as a pleasant green, weather forecasts might usefully also list the temperature and other conditions on the same date a year ago, and the record high or low in that place on that date, the year it was set, and possibly even superimposed charts of historical data on current conditions. That way, we'd get a little perspective on the supposedly unprecedented conditions of today. In the newsletter, we also cite an opinion piece in the National Post from Gunter Joachim, who's president of the Western Canadian Wheat Growers, and is attempting to explain a few basic facts to the Canadian federal government about their proposed crackdown on fertilizer use. And he starts with the fact that farmers aren't just slinging the stuff around recklessly as things stand. On the contrary, he writes, quote, We're cheap. Farming is a passion and multi-generational lifestyle to be sure, but we're still in it for the profits, like any other business. Our single most expensive input as we raise our crops is fertilizer. We use as little of it as possible, end quote. Which is not something politicians would understand, unfortunately. Nor will they probably grasp his further point that because Canadian farmers are already so efficient, forcing them to use less fertilizer will mean forcing them to grow less food, and so production will shift to countries where they use more fertilizer, producing a net increase in greenhouse gases and a net decrease in food, which will hurt Canada, will hurt poor people in other countries, and will hurt the planet. Otherwise, a great plan. Mind you, nowadays a major problem with trying to engage alarmists in a discussion of the flaws in their schemes, even if you accept their premises, is that they operate in such a bubble that they really can't grasp that anyone disagrees with them. Like that classic RT interview with astrophysicist Piers Corbin, where the interviewer could not believe his ears when Corbin told him the European heat waves had, quote, nothing to do with man, end quote. And so the interviewer demanded to know why, if that was the case, journalists kept saying the opposite. Why indeed? And then there's Euro News Green, describing the views of the new energy secretary, appointed by incoming British Prime Minister Liz Truss, the way an anthropologist might describe the views of a remote tribe of cannibals. Quote, The appointment is controversial, as Rhys Mogg has in the past dismissed climate scientists as alarmism, describing environmentalists as doomsayers. And we don't know anybody who thinks that way. Climate Home News said, quote, The man in charge of UK energy policy, Jacob Rees-Mogg, is a monarchist with a record of climate science denial, end quote. It just can't be. But it is, even if journalists keep saying the opposite. This week's newsletter also has an installment of our Everybody Knows series, which comes from Richard in the UK and concerns a chart that Sir David Attenborough showed the delegates at the COP26 meeting in November 2021. It's very similar to the chart that Al Gore showed to great rhetorical effect in An Inconvenient Truth, and it tracks how CO2 and global temperature move together. And of course, everybody knows that that means CO2 controls the climate. 
Unfortunately, there's a question that both Attenborough and Gore forgot to ask. Which one moves first? Is CO2 leading the dance, or is it temperature? And that question was asked by a group of scientists in 2015, led by statistics expert James Davidson. And they published their paper in a technical journal called Envirometrics, and in language no one but their fellow maths geeks would understand, which probably saved them a lot of name-calling if reporters actually realized that they'd reached a conclusion that wasn't what everybody knows. Because in plain language, their conclusion was that temperature changes precede CO2 changes. And since causality doesn't run backward in time, it must mean rising temperatures increase atmospheric CO2, not the reverse, despite what everybody knows. And here's another thing along those lines. According to not a lot of people know that, former UK government chief science advisor and perennial climate alarmist Sir David King warned the nation that the heat wave in July would lead to at least 10,000 deaths. Instead, the heat wave lasted all of two days, and the death toll for the month of July, compared to the average of previous Julys, was, according to the UK Office for National Statistics, down, not up. What? Finally, from the CO2Science.org archive, we look at a paper on whether rising temperatures turn forests from carbon sinks into carbon fountains. It's widely believed in the computer model, we are all going to die community, but... Looking at some Canadian forests, researchers in 2015 found that, well, it ain't so. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I don't know what everybody knows.